Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your regular update on the world of EBM and recently on the evidence around COVID. We're recording this on the 22nd of June, which you might notice is a bit more than a week since the last one. All through the pandemic, we've talked about how it's exposed the underlying problems in all of our systems of healthcare. And one of those problems is the deluge of information. So to give you a break from the onslaught of information and to give us a bit more time to filter what's important, we're going to be coming to you a little less often from now on every couple of weeks or so. We're still keen to hear from you, so get in touch on social media or at bmj.com slash podcast to let us know what you're interested in hearing about. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and as always in this podcast, we're joined by Helen MacDonald and Carl Hennigan, both GPs. Helen is UK Research Editor for the BMJ, and Carl is the editor of BMJ Evidence Based Medicine. Hello, welcome back to the podcast, Helen. Hello, everybody. And hi, Carl. Hi, Duncan. Just to let you know, it's my 96th day in lockdown, but I'm aware Helen is more than 100 days because she went into isolation before lockdown. I did. Well, there you go. Congratulations on passing your 100th day of lockdown, whenever that happened to be, Helen. I, actually, I wasn't counting. <laughs> you know me. To. I'm in a kind of time Yeah, war. time has no meaning anymore, does it? Well, you know um, I'm a numbers man and are. I like my quantification. I'll just say it's been a long time. I like words. Almost, yeah, almost forever. Um, So Helen, could you just give us a quick update on what's coming up this week for everyone? Yes, we have three uh, very interesting topics for you. We have a little update on dexamethasone, which I'm sure listeners will be very interested in because there was a lot of media attention uh, around the recovery trial data, uh, which were press released this week. We come back to John Deeks with a little update on antibody tests, where they're Soon will be some news. And um, finally, we come to something which I've been trying to get my head around and find someone to talk about for some weeks, which is rehabilitation and recovery after COVID-19. So, yeah, I've had a week off this week and I saw in the uh, news that story about dexamethasone. And um, I'm just reading it and thinking, there's a Carl rant in this, in the waiting. So, uh Carl, it's a danger to it. give him the mic so early, but he's got to be succinct if he's doing the presenting bit rather than the ranting bit. <laughs> I'm not going to rant too early, but the recovery trial on dexamethasone, the results of the trial are actually out in a preprint, which I think is incredibly useful because that moves beyond the relative effects and gives us the absolute numbers in terms of events. And I think first it's really interesting in terms of the primary outcome. It gives you an overall effect which says there's a sort of risk difference of 3% in all participants. But I think this is where it gets really interesting. The pre-specified subgroups look at people who are ventilated, those on oxygen, and those are what we consider a mild to moderate in hospital but not on oxygen, don't go on ITU. So let's take the first group. The difference is on the dexamethasone, 28-day mortality with 29% versus 40.7%. That's a risk difference of 11.7%. Moving to the oxygen group, 
you then get to 21.5% versus 25%, a smaller risk difference of 4.5%, still significant. But here's where it's interesting in terms of the pre-specified subgroups. Not on oxygen, there was a trend for dexamethasone to increase your risk of dying at 28 days. That was 17% versus 13.2%. That didn't reach uh, statistical significance, but I think that's a really important finding. In those with sort of in-hospital, mild to moderate disease, I would say dexamethasone is not recommended and this treatment is for ventilated patients or those on oxygen. And there's one caveat with that. In the results, which is really interesting, is patients with longer duration of symptoms who were more likely to be on invasive mechanical ventilation at the time of randomization had a greater mortality benefit. And this was amongst those with symptoms for more than 77 days, but not among those with more recent symptom onset. And there was a trend for that. So here's what I interpret this. In the early phases of the disease, steroids are potentially not helpful because they prolong the course of the virals. They uh, reduce your immune system functioning to get rid of the virus. But once, and what we've seen with this disease, is those people who deteriorate beyond seven days they end up on ITU, end up on oxygen, this is the treatment you should recommend for those. That's very useful, Carl. What's your take on the reporting of this paper in terms of these pre-specified subgroups? Because there are some people who look at the trial registry and those pre-specified subgroups aren't there, but they're written there in their protocol and they're being reported in their paper. Do you think there are any um, concerns about the reporting Well, look, I think one of the things you have to do here is take the size of the effect. And if you look at ventilated patients, this is a big reduction in mortality. When you introduce biases, you think to what extent would that bias undermine that effect? And in this case, the bias I consider has a small impact on that effect. The other bias you could look at is this is open label. But again, the size of the effect is so large that impact will be small. I think you have to recognise here is that randomization occurred between the 19th of March and 8th of June. 11,000 plus participants were randomised. So we're three months from the first patient being randomised and we're looking at a preprint. And that randomization finished on the 8th of June and within 15 days we're looking at a preprint. And this is the advantage of protocols and of registries, we can actually look at these issues. Now, this was a small effect. It might be important, but because the size of effect in the ventilated group is so large, this is a strong evidence for recommending this in routine practice. I think the other interesting aspect to the story here has been about the communication of this trial evidence, which has been really hotly awaited. So we saw for the remdesivir trial a few weeks ago, a press release which gave some preliminary findings and then we had to wait. I can't remember if it it was days or whether it felt like weeks or if it was actually weeks for the result of that to be published. The recovery authors um, here seem to have done a slightly different tack. We did start with the press release, which had those relative numbers in and was was not very open to scrutiny. Um, the full paper isn't published yet. This is described as preliminary and is on a preprint. But at least we have that in the public domain now, which seems to be an improvement over how the evidence emerged on remdesivir. Well, I think there are two issues here. One is the expediency to get this out into clinical practice. 
because every day matters here if you've got that size of a, an effect in terms of routine practice you've still got people in a trial you want to make it available for everybody so I think this is important because when we have a large effect and the evidence is clear we can probably get away with this sort of reporting but when we start to look at smaller effects and consider the biases any issues like this will make us feel uncertain about the effects. I think it's uh, we're seeing a new order in all of this pandemic in terms of how evidence is being made available. And I'm sure after the event, remembering if we go back to 2009, there was a real issue in the swine flu pandemic with making evidence available in a, in a timely matter. We have fixed that. The question is, how should it be done in which order? I think is still important. But I think this is not bad. <laughs> I'd be hard to press to see how you could do this much quicker without introducing a delay of five or seven days and that matters in terms of the size of effect. So Helen, you mentioned we were going to be talking about testing and uh, that's been in the news again as Trump said at his rally uh, this weekend that he's asked his people to slow the testing down. Um, now we've covered testing in the <laughs> that past. That wasn't the angle. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank God. Um, we've covered testing in the past, both the PCR testing and the antibody ones. Um, and Helen, you've caught up with John Deeks, our testing guru again. Uh, what was it you were interested in this time? Yeah, as you said, we, we've done COVID testing a couple of times on the show. Um, and I think the themes that we uncovered there, firstly, were around the systemic problems we have in the way that our system um, is quite vulnerable, particularly to commercial interest. And then we've visited uh, a little bit um, around the antibody testing. And I came back to John Deeks. Professor of Biostatistics at the University of Birmingham, who's been our go-to person. And this week is an exciting one for John because him and his team have launched their first version of their systematic review on the performance of antibody tests, which is published with Cochrane. And I wanted to come back and hear the key findings from him. Our review's been looking at all of the studies of the accuracy of antibody tests. The version which is published finally uh, today is the data up to the end of April. So we're about a month and a half behind the current times. But up to that point, we found 57 different publications uh, which have been published looking at different um, tests for antibodies for COVID-19. Um, they had a total of nearly 16,000 test results including uh, included in them, including 8,500 uh, different test results from people who had COVID. So those studies, what we've done in our, our meta-analysis of them is to look at the different patterns of positivity according to the different types of tests, whether they are near-patient lateral flow type assays like a pregnancy test or whether they're laboratory-based tests like the current Roche and um, Abbott assays are, which require venous blood samples but also um, when the tests are done. So uh, one of the most important things we've seen in this review is that actually the studies which have looked at antibody tests in the first two weeks since the onset of symptoms look like they perform really badly. But after two weeks, they actually pick up. Actually, week two isn't too bad. 
but from about 14 days onwards, most of these tests are getting to a point where their sensitivity uh, is reasonably high, which means that they're not giving too many um, false negative results. What about their specificity at that point in time? So specificity in these studies, I mean, I think it's important to point out we, we have major concerns about these studies because they were done in opportunistic ways. Most of them are from China, from the first wave of the infection. So obviously the investigators were dealing with unknowns and having to, to design things as they went along. Um, and there's, there's a, a lot of issues in how we are actually defining who's, test, who's got COVID-19 and who hasn't. So most of the data in these studies from people who haven't got COVID-19 are looking at blood banks from pre-pandemic times, so from um, last year or, or previously. And across those, we see very few false positives. So it's about 1% to 2%, um, so the specificity is 99% across those. A very small number of studies, which we thought were a little bit more likely to give us an answer which is of relevance to us, are actually looking at current patients who presented with respiratory type symptoms, which was found not to be COVID-19. And in that group, the specificity was very slightly lower, but it was still at a, at a good high 90s value. So there are some methodological problems with how these um, studies are set up. And you mentioned testing historical negative cases. What other themes just in terms of how the data are put together, is it important for listeners to understand? So I think if you read the papers, one thing which would strike you is that the lack of the word patient. They talk about samples. So a lot of these studies, they don't actually have very clear data as to about, about the patients. And quite often they've just got access to samples in a laboratory setting. And it's not clear how many samples come from each patient in a lot of them. So we've got a bit of an issue that the confidence in the results is probably overstated because they may have multiple counts from the same patient. And the other issue is that more or less all of the COVID patients are hospitalised patients. So they're patients who probably had the most severe but not lethal forms of COVID. And we would expect probably that they have got the strongest antibody responses because they've recovered, they've mounted a response and recovered from this. So there's concerns that the results from these studies are not really applicable to patients who've had COVID and stayed at home uh, because it hasn't been severe enough for them to get respiratory distress. So I guess to draw an analogy, listeners might be quite familiar with the idea of having phase one or phase two or phase three um, studies of um, interventions in randomised controlled trials and going from situations which feel quite lab-based and preliminary um, and moving closer to clinical practice. Are you saying that the problem here is that really we're quite early in the research journey here? I think that analogy is very useful. Yes, I think, you know, most of these you might think of like a phase two study where they've chosen patient groups who are most likely to respond if the test works but they're not going to be the phase three results, which say when we start using this in the general population, this is how it will perform. So there's lots of, of aspects of these studies. Often, even when we're using a near patient test, which could be used on a finger prick blood sample, they're using, a, they're using it in a laboratory setting with a venous serum sample. Um, so there's all sorts of aspects which are, are making this uh, look as 
you know, testing these testers in, in the most idealized circumstances. So yes, absolutely, we need to see more studies, and, and we can see some starting to come through in the studies we were, we're already looking at for the next update, which are evaluating these tests in clinical settings where they, they actually will be useful. And I guess it's easy to say more research is needed, but there is also clinical practice going on in the background and people have a wish to act now. Some governments, such as the UK government, have purchased these tests and are starting to use them. And I guess there are some key areas of use which are of particular interest. One is around surveillance and understanding how many people in the population may be immune to this, so a kind of public health exercise. And secondly, there's work perhaps to be done um, around how to use these either for the general population um, to help them make decisions about their level of risk or their suitability to be in a particular environment and very specifically amongst um, health and social care workers who are providing care to very vulnerable groups. How can the information in this paper help policymakers or decision makers in those areas? So how we're going to use these serology tests is a um, very important discussion that I think we need to have. Um, I don't think it's been uh, elaborated enough as to what are the strategies we can we can use these tests in. Our review contains a summary of the sorts of settings you could use uh, a serology test, an antibody test. Now, the first one, actually, which isn't on your list, is using it for diagnosis. That a large number of people in the UK and elsewhere probably have isolated at home with COVID-like disease, and they haven't had a PCR test. Um, and some of them are still sick several weeks later. And it might be that they haven't got COVID, that they have something else. So uh, for a um, probably a primary care doctor, having the ability to order a serology test, an antibody test on those patients may help them identify whether or not they currently still are suffering from, from COVID. Um, and the tests, as I said, don't have particularly high sensitivity earlier on, but by week three, so if you've got beyond 14 days of symptoms, um, they're not unreasonable. So if you undertook a serology test for a diagnostic test, uh, in a patient who's still got symptoms after two weeks, um, a positive result will be convincing. A negative result, there'll be a little bit of doubt about whether they, you know, whether it's actually excluded COVID. But that could help with individual patient management decisions with people who are still sick. And I think it's really important to highlight that because I don't think it's being thought like that as a, a way of using these tests. What about those other scenarios? So those other scenarios are are, are questions about looking at is this telling us about um, either personal immunity, that's where we want to get to with this test, or possibly telling us about, in a public health type question, if we're looking at hospital workers, say, about who has had disease, who have we failed to protect whilst they've been working in the hospital. So a number of hospitals are, are taking these studies quite seriously and, and understanding that there are different workers within the hospital um, workforce who've actually had um, unacceptably high exposure uh, to COVID um, and it may help them think about how to protect them in the second uh, round or or even currently uh, against that. So it, it's a good way of, of maybe monitoring how leaky our PPE has been in some settings. When we come to thinking then about individuals, it's a little bit tricky as to what decision does somebody make from getting these test results? So um, 
you know, we think that we use a test to help make a decision. And so for many people, they're very interested to know whether they had COVID or not. But whatever the result is, they'll probably not change anything as to how they live. Uh, but maybe there are other people where actually getting a result will help them understand um, whether or not they should, could change their social um, networks if they've been isolating from loved ones or, or, or um, then maybe actually discovering that everybody has had COVID may allow you to think about how, you know, that we're probably not at risk. But underlying all of this is the question of, does it really tell us we're immune? Does it really tell us we're not going to be able to get this disease again or spread it further, that we haven't currently got it? And that question's not clearly answered yet. Well, a reflection that I thought would be nice to start with was... um, I was really interested in what John said about the need to define the clinical questions that we want answered using this test, how we're actually going to use this information to design how we staff healthcare or um, how we um, advise people to act or behave um, or what risks it's safe for them to take or not. And then we've got the public health angle. Do, Do you have thoughts, Carl, on how you move forward? Yeah, so there are a couple of important questions in my mind is, number one, if you are in terms of uh, active clinical care, I think it's a really important question that, for instance, should you preferentially go into patients with COVID if you've got immunity? And we that's an important question, shouldn't you? So if you've got immunity, your husband has or I've got it, should I be the one who's going into care homes when there's potentially people with COVID there? I think that would make sense, wouldn't it, if you've got immunity on board? The second is, uh, what about vaccination then? If you've got immunity, you don't need a vaccine, do you? And so actually you can pass that on to people who do need it. And and that's another important question, isn't it? And I think that's really important to answer. Third from a, uh, I don't know quite what it means within the the wider spectrum of going out and about, but it certainly will give you a different risk perception, won't it, if you've got antibodies? Later in my conversation with John, he talked about two problems with respect to long-term immunity. One is the fact that we need time to pass to understand how long the antibodies last. And the second was understanding a bit more about immunology and the fact that there are different types of antibodies, some of which are neutralising antibodies, which are actively involved in your immune defence, as far as I understand, we're going to get immunologists calling in, I think, in my response (laughs) to my explanation here. Or um, you can also have antibodies which are less involved and active, as far as I understand. Um, so, So I think not just in terms of the duration of how long you have the antibodies, but how effective they are at fighting off infection. Do you know any more about the long term effects, Carl, and antibodies? So what we know is the sort of IgM, the acute phase, they disappear and in SARS-CoV-1 they receded after six months. And then you've got your longer-lasting IgG antibodies and they do reduce, but in SARS-CoV-1 they were still detectable after a year. And the question is, as you measure, you may get to points where they come down and down, but there are studies are showing even 15 years later people with SARS-CoV-1 had some form of immunity from their antibodies and that wouldn't surprise me if you've had severe disease whereas what we see in less milder forms of disease and this is with the other coronaviruses 
is the ones that cause colds, you do not get the same amount of immune response. And that's why you can continue to get colds years, if you like, a couple of years later. So I think it'll be really interesting to see, for those who've had symptomatic disease, measure their response at one year and beyond, compared to those who've had mild disease, who may not have mounted such an antibody response, and whether they've got immunity long-lasting. Now, testing is the beginning of your COVID journey, but if you're unlucky enough to be one of the people severely affected by the virus, it's obviously definitely not the end. Um, Neither is necessarily getting uh, out of hospital. And Helen, that's what you've been looking at this week, the sort of post-COVID rehabilitation, what's going on after that. Indeed, it's been on my mind for weeks. I think since we started seeing images of people coming out of ITU being clapped off the ward and then you think, what happens next? And I'd seen on Twitter, I think particularly people involved in rehabilitation, um, occupational therapists and physios um, reflecting some of the challenges that lie ahead uh, for those patients. And even what about patients that aren't sick enough to go to ITU but have been pretty unwell, have been in hospital or experienced a complication from COVID or just had a really unpleasant time um, at home and have symptoms dragging on weeks later. We've started to hear about all of these things. And we know from many conditions that care after um, major events like having a heart attack or having an exacerbation of lung disease or trauma, we know that rehabilitation is important. But it's quite mysterious to me. I don't know that much about it. So I called a friendly consultant who runs Mm -hmm. an acute rehab service reaching back into ITU. This was Dr. Professor Lynn Turner-Stokes, who is a professor and consultant in rehabilitation medicine at Northwick Park Hospital in London and also at King's College. And I spotted her because she has also been involved um, with the British Society of Rehabilitation Medicine in their evolving guidance on COVID. And I called her to hear more about rehabilitation, what we know about how good it is in general, Um, and what we know about rehabilitation after COVID-19. One of the things we have learned is that initially we thought of COVID as a primarily respiratory condition. And as time went on, we realised that it um, was really a microvascular condition that could therefore affect all organs um, in the body. But different patients have different presentations with different organs affected and this diversity therefore is quite a challenge in terms of the evidence base because uh, we're looking at a very diverse group of people with very diverse needs. Some of those will be people who will actually progress very quickly, they have a short period of time in hospital or don't even need to be in hospital and make quite a good recovery quite quickly and go on to require rehabilitation in the community. Um, Others have very complex uh, conditions requiring long lengths of stay in intensive care of six weeks, eight weeks or more, um, who have a much slower recovery trajectory um, and may indeed um, never make a full recovery. So we've got that whole diversity. Um, We know that Uh, COVID can affect any organ in the body most commonly. We've got the pulmonary, the cardiovascular, the musculoskeletal uh, deconditioning. Um, We know that there may be some restrictive lung disease forming from that. 
um, uh, we know that there are the effects of prolonged stay on ITU where patients will um, lose on average two to three percent of their muscle mass uh, per day and that's without the involvement of the other organs. We know that about a third of patients have neurological consequences which can vary from uh, quite minor things like loss of sense of smell to much more severe uh, multiple strokes and encephalopathy and even prolonged disorders of consciousness. Um, some patients will carry on having uh, cognitive problems um, partly because we now accept um, uh, uh, greater degrees of hypoxia, we know, know not to overventilate patients, and so we accept lower oxygen saturation. So some patients may have experienced quite significant hypoxia. Um, they may have had um, some microvascular uh, brain injury, and of course the ongoing effects of delirium, and those cognitive effects will often then color their ability to gain from rehabilitation and self-management as they go forward because they don't have the ability to, um, to carry over information in the same way as somebody who's not affected. Moving from this situation of, of uncertainty about exactly what the picture is for, for a particular individual recovering from COVID, what are the general principles or general approaches that you take in rehabilitation medicine um, more broadly that you could um, begin working with in with COVID patients and perhaps adapt over time as the picture becomes clearer? There's a very strong evidence base that specialist rehabilitation is not only effective but saves money and it comes mainly from three sources. First of all there's a series of Cochrane reviews um, that show that it needs to be started as early as possible in the acute phase and then continued on into the community as patients need to change. We have the National Clinical Database for Specialist Rehabilitation that's now been running 10 years um, and that has given us very useful information that demonstrates that um, rehabilitation helps patients to regain their independence. By reducing their dependency on others, that leads to savings in the costs of ongoing care so that we have average cost savings of about 25 to 30 thousand uh, pounds per year per patient and that means to say that we often over a lifetime we've got lifetime savings of somewhere between three quarters of a million pounds to a million pounds per patient which makes rehabilitation one of the most cost effective interventions that the NHS can offer. Um, we have proof of principle for the rehab prescription from the trauma networks where it's now been um, introduced and is up and running and is now mandated by NHS England as part of the NHS contract and we had a national clinical audit for specialist rehabilitation following major injury that linked the major clinical data sets for trauma and rehabilitation that enabled us to track patients through the pathway to see if they got the rehab they needed um, and also uh, to demonstrate the shortfall so we were actually able to calculate the service capacity needed to meet uh, the demand and clearly if that works for trauma there's no reason not to do the same for other seriously ill patients. So at the severe end of the spectrum, we have uh, patients who uh, are often still medically unstable, um, who require uh, the coordinated input of a multidisciplinary team in hospital because they have severe physical, cognitive and communicative disabilities that require a specialist inpatient approach in um, a, a unit that's particularly designed with um, a multidisciplinary team with physiotherapy, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy, psychology, etc., all working in close coordination. 
um, and they may require that for weeks or months um, before they can move on to the community. So that's at the the um, most severe end. Probably we don't know quite how many people in that group, but probably around five to ten percent. The majority hopefully will progress more quickly uh, through with their local rehabilitation services, generic rehabilitation services, and a large number will progress quite rapidly into the community. Um, very often, at the first point, people are just keen, keen to get home and pleased to be home, um, and problems sometimes don't immediately become apparent, but a little bit further down the line, they find that they're not making as quick a recovery as they had hoped. They've often got muscle fatigue, um, uh, weakness, and um, and and just general sort of loss of stamina, uh, as well as other more subtle problems. So um, the sorts of things that that group may benefit from would be things like potentially self-exercise uh, programs. Um, but I think one of the things we have to be really careful of is that uh, people may have had um, underlying cardiac uh, lung problems neurological problems and rather than simply saying they could direct into those um, self-directed programs first off they need a proper medical assessment specialist medical assessment review to check that it's safe for them to exercise but coming up the other way there are a group of people um, who perhaps never went to hospital but who were quite unwell in the community they may not have even seen um uh, a GP um, if 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 they were advised by 111 and other services um, with the information that we had at the time to stay at home. So what do you predict in, in terms of that group? The first thing that I would say about those patients would be to say we really need to be having uh, coordinated medical programs that people can slot into where they can be assessed have the necessary investigations that they should have to make sure that it's suitable for them to exercise uh, safely. We do have, around the country, we have um, about, I think, 500 or so pulmonary rehabilitation programs and another 500 or so of cardiac rehabilitation programs, which could potentially be very useful for those patients to slot into. But they probably also will need augmenting somewhat because of the other problems that COVID patients may have. So for example, somebody going into a pulmonary rehabilitation program may also have upper airway damage because we know COVID is quite destructive to the upper airways. So they may need a speech and language therapist. They may have swallowing problems. They may need dietetics input. They may have lost a lot of weight. They may have uh, psychological needs, which may be either emotional, dealing with what they're going through, or cognitive because of the more subtle cognitive uh, deficit rather than saying we need to sort of start up something whole something completely new we need to look at the programs that we've got and try and see how we can build and augment those programs to perhaps give a, a more rounded approach for those people with more widespread problems This is one of my general rants when it comes to non-pharmaceutical interventions is actually when I read the evidence is always lacking very little to inform what we should do. So if you go to the Cochrane database, there's a systematic review on exercise rehab following 
intensive care unit discharge for recovery from critical illness. Now, what that shows is that they included six trials with 483 adult ICU participants. And their basic conclusion was, at this time, we are unable to determine an overall effect on functional exercise capacity or health quality of life. A second review, similarly, early intervention, mobilisation or active exercise for critically ill adults in the ICU. Four RCTs this time, but more participants, 690 comes to similar conclusions there is insufficient evidence on the effect of early mobilization of critically ill people in the icu on physical function or performance so i think this is um an issue that is systemic across our healthcare. is when it gets to issues like this we should be now incentivizing a research culture at all bits of the architecture to say, look, we really need to understand which of the components really make a difference. Let's get the trials in place. And then if it's key, they make a significant difference. We should resource them appropriately. But I find we have this always uncertain answers when it comes to these issues. I suppose in the past we've talked about how... um COVID could be an opportunity for, for change. And do you think having suddenly this uh, this big cohort of people could be useful in, in investigating some of this cohort of people with a kind of known infection? Yeah, I think that's true. And what I'm talk- calling for is the components to be uh, looked at, you know, early versus late, whether you get intense exercise versus less exercise, whether you do home-based versus non-home-based. And I think these are important issues, particularly given that they are often labour-intensive, they're difficult to access, and we need to know what's the best way of delivering these uh, rehab programmes, in what setting. And I think, you know, you could look at different ways of delivering them that actually do suit the patients and are sustainable and are cost-effective, but you need to study them, not just say it sounds right. We need to have a culture of doing the research. And I guess it's tricky here, again, that, as you say, rehab services often feel hard to access, and particularly um, for that potentially larger group of people who've had milder disease in the community, how to achieve that access um, and what what could be offered. And I know um, Lynn was talking about closer closer working um with other colleagues over this time and I wonder to what extent um, community services could now get involved in those discussions around what those services might actually look or work like. Well there we go I think that's brought us to the end of Talk Evidence this week. We launched the show in its own podcast rather than in the BMJ podcast feed to make it easier for you to find our back catalogue. We'll still be posting in both places for now, but uh, we might be using Talk Evidence Stream to publish maybe some longer interviews um, or pick up on some wider topics. So if EBM is your thing, then check that out. We've also got a new page. I don't know if you guys have seen it. bmj.com slash podcast slash talk evidence. And uh, there's even a new logo on there that we spent a long time agonizing about. Um, so go and have a look. So we'll be back in a fortnight or so. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care. <laughs>